In this episode of Physically Spiritual, I will explore what it means to grow into the full stature of Christ. Physically Spiritual grew out of my experience of growing physically healthier and realizing that it was also changing my spiritual life. I'm captivated about learning the truth about my body and also the truth about the faith. In Physically Spiritual, I attempt to harmonize and share with you what I've discovered. I'm your host, Andrew Reinhardt. To start the episode this week, I want to share a story from the life of St. Therese of Lisieux from a book called Into His Likeness by Dr. Ed Shree. Uh, So stick with me here as I read this quote. Therese is the youngest child of her family and loses her mother when she was four and a half years old, and this tragedy leaves its mark on her. Before her mother's death, Therese is confident, outgoing, joyful, little girl, but after her mother dies, she becomes excessively shy and emotionally sensitive. She tries to change but cannot overcome her hypersensitivities, especially if she perceives she is causing anyone difficulty. She is greatly saddened, and this weakness itself depresses her. She often cries at the slightest bit of trouble and then cries for having cried. So I I love this story because St. Therese of Lisieux is often sort of epitomized in our church as someone who became holy very young, and and it's uh, a well-known story from her uh, spiritual director that he believed that she had never committed a single grave sin in her entire life. Uh, But this story illustrates how a simple event from childhood, here a, a big trauma like the loss of her mother, then affected her young feminine heart and caused this kind of acting out, this disorder in her life that expressed itself in and little weaknesses in her family, uh, her oversensitivity. I'm going to continue on with the quote. It says, After years of battling this weakness, however, Therese finally experiences a profound change in her soul that makes her confident and in control of her emotions from that moment on. She describes this as the moment of her complete conversion. It is Christmas Eve in 1886. She is 14 years old. The family comes home from midnight mass, and Therese brings her shoes to the fireplace where her father has the Christmas Eve custom of putting little presents in them each year. As they are going up the stairs, she and her older sister, Celine, hear their father say something that would normally have sent her, Therese, into an emotional downward spiral. Worn out after the long evening, their father notices that shoes at the fireplace and complains to himself about having to fill them at this late hour for his daughter, who should have already outgrown this childhood tradition. He says to himself, well, fortunately, this will be the last year. So this this experience illustrates how even this small little thing, this comment that's completely, uh, completely understandable by her father after working, after being a single parent, uh, that he would approach this and just simply be worn out, be tired, and be frustrated that he has to fill these shoes. And how because of her woundedness, Therese encountering this comment would normally have been sent into a spiral. It would have sent her over the edge, caused her to do something that she would have later regretted. All right, here's how the Lord heals her. It says, these words pierce Therese's heart. Her eyes start to well up. Celine, knowing how much this pains her sister, says, Oh, Therese, don't go downstairs. It would cause you too much grief to look at your slippers right now. 
But at that moment, Therese notices a change inside of her. She rises above her emotions and acts as if she had not heard what was said. Forcing back my tears, now this is Therese speaking, I descended the stairs rapidly, controlling the pounding of my heart. I took my slippers and placed them in front of Papa and withdrew all the objects joyfully. I had the happy appearance of a queen. Having regained his own cheerfulness, Papa was laughing. Celine believed it was all a dream. Fortunately, it was a sweet reality. Trez had discovered once again the strength of soul which she had lost at the age of four and a half. And she was to persevere. She was to preserve it forever. Sorry. Therese explains that it was Jesus who changed her heart. This is a quote from her. The work I had been unable to do in 10 years was done by Jesus in one instant. So the story illustrates a few other things that I want to point out. One, this healing process is very subtle and simple. You know, oftentimes when we think about, about healing, when we think about maturity, when we talk about trauma, which have all been topics we've been discussing here on, on, on season three of Physically Spiritual, we sometimes think that it's just the big things that count. And you might be thinking something like this, well, nothing really bad ever happened to me. You know, I wasn't traumatized. Um, my parents didn't die when I was young, et cetera, et cetera. In different ways, you might um, want to downplay what has caused you harms. Uh, but, but here in this story, what heals Therese is just this subtle experience of, one, her sister intervening in the moment, saying something to her, and two, the Lord finally opening her heart in a new way. Uh, while our loved ones wound us, God also uses our loved ones to heal us. And I think this story really illustrates this. But also, there's this period of 10 years that Therese is suffering from, from this attachment, suffering from this wound before God heals us. And on our own healing journey, it can also sometimes take a long time for the work that we're doing. If you've been tracking with, with season three um, of Physically Spiritual, We've been going through different perspectives on mental health, different understandings of neuroscience from psychology in order to understand the process of healing and maturing in Christ. Specifically, uh, kind of looking at the idea of how do we overcome habitual and grave sin that we can't just stop doing on our own power. So if you've been tracking with the season, uh, something that might have drawn you in is just thinking of something from your own life that you've been struggling with, something that you continue to fall back into and, and that you seem not to have the power to overcome. And you might be on a journey wondering, well, Lord, when will I stop doing this? When will I stop, um, I don't know, overeating in the evening or, or committing some sin of lust or having this sinful pattern in conversation, uh, whatever it is that you struggle with. When we're thinking about this healing journey, I think it's helpful to think of it kind of like an excavation. The goal at the end of the journey isn't to be healed. It's not to, be, to stop sinning. The goal at the end of the journey is relationship with God. It's connection. It's a state of being with. It's being in the kingdom of heaven. So in the process of entering into deeper relationship with God, you might think of it like an excavation. 
And the sin that you're concerned about, what you really wish you would stop doing, might be close to the surface, or it might be way down in the bottom. So as you're going through this process, you know it might be a year of striving before the Lord heals you of that sin. It might be 20 years of striving and seeking the Lord before that sin is removed from you. But it's important to keep in mind that ultimately the goal isn't me. It's not my own moral perfection, although that's important. The goal is a relationship with God. And in this relationship with God, we have to be healed from what's wounded us. The blocks have to be removed. But just because the block's removed doesn't mean that that's all that has to happen. We also have to grow in maturity. This is from the fourth chapter of the letter to the Ephesians. St. Paul says, And he gave some as apostles, others as prophets, others as evangelists, others as pastors and teachers, to equip the holy ones for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of faith and knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the extent of the full stature of Christ, so that we may no longer be infants, tossed by waves and swept along by every wind of teaching, arousing from human trickery, from their cunning and the interests of deceitful scheming. Rather, living the truth in love, we should grow in every way into him who is the head, Christ. This passage Uh, The image of it is so profound, growing into maturity in Christ, the full stature of Christ. It starts out with this uh, interesting piece on charisms, right? That some are apostles, some are prophets, others evangelists, others pastors, others teachers. Why? To equip the holy ones. So the gifts that we're given are given to us for the building up of the community. We're healed for others. We're equipped for others. But also, if we're, if we're trying to grow into that full maturity, we're going to receive it from the people around us whom God has gifted. Growing in maturity is relational. St. Paul contrasts the state of maturity with the state of infancy, and he describes infancy as being tossed by waves and swept along by every wind of teaching. Being tossed in waves. When I hear this, I think of emotional turmoil. I think of the inability to emotionally self-regulate. And as a result of not really possessing yourself, then everything that comes into your life demands movement inside of you. So if you listen to another podcast, and on that podcast you hear some teaching that uh, maybe you don't even agree with it, but it still moves your heart, it swings you, and maybe changes, changes the way you think about the world. Uh, There might be another time where you have some commitment, maybe a commitment to a certain way you want to eat. And then all of a sudden at a work party or something, somebody has this food. It looks so good, but it's not something you want to eat. Well, you're swept along by the passion. It's that wind that moves you. So this being tossed around by everything we encounter is a sign of immaturity, a sign of um, an emotional infancy. And St. Paul ends by encouraging us to live the truth in love. He says, we should grow in every way into him who is the head, Christ. We should grow in every way. Uh, The great spiritual writer and philosopher Dallas Willard, in his writings, talked that full maturity 
includes physical maturity, emotional maturity, and spiritual maturity. Like the book of Ephesians say, we have to grow in every way. So while we all, if we have enough food and and shelter and rest, we grow and we physically mature, just because my body, like my body right now is 36 years old, just because my body is that old, doesn't mean that I've emotionally and spiritually matured in a way that corresponds to my physical maturity. And I think this is often the case. Remember, this maturity happens in relationship. I don't just sit in the corner and grow. And on the other hand, I don't just sit in the corner and get wounded. While our wounds happen in relationships, our healing happens in relationships, and our maturing happens in relationships. This is from paragraph 239 of the Catechism. It says, By calling God Father... The language of faith thus draws on the human experience of parents who are in one way the first representatives of God for man. But this experience also tells us that human parents are fallible and can disfigure the face of fatherhood and motherhood. Although he is their origin and standard, no one is father as God is father. So God's using this experience of parenthood to approach us to seek our heart, to seek our conversion. But the catechism recognizes that every parent falls short. Every father participates in God's fatherhood. Every mother participates in God's motherhood. But every human father and mother is on some level imperfect. They do the best they can, but they're not capable of being fully like God. Uh, when, When we talk about this, this isn't parent blaming. The point isn't to say, well, I'm this way because my dad did that or my mom didn't do this. Um, this is just recognizing the fact that the only humans that truly did the best they could were Jesus and Mary, those that didn't actually sin. So all we're recognizing by just noting the fact that our parents weren't perfect is we're noting the fact they weren't Jesus and Mary. But by recognizing the contours of our heart and our wounds and where those wounds originated then, it opens up the space for us to bring those wounds to to healing and then also to grow into full maturity. This is from uh, Jim Wilder, his book, Renovated, God, Dallas Willard, and the Church That Transformed. So this grew out of a conference that Dallas Willard gave and Jim Wilder's commenting on Dallas's lectures. This is what he says. He says, when people were traumatized, they stopped maturing in the area of their identity altered by the trauma. Traumas come from two sources, bad things that should not happen and necessary good things that did not happen. Both sources left people alone with with critical needs, with critical needs at critical times. It proved relatively easy to resolve trauma from bad things that happened, ensuring that the person was no longer alone in their troubles converted their trauma, alone and frozen in pain, back to suffering. It was much harder to correct trauma when crucial good things did not happen. Even once a trauma was resolved, the person was still no more mature than they were before. Maturity development must be restarted from where growth was stopped by trauma.
So what he's saying here is that um, we're traumatized in two ways. Something bad that happens to us that shouldn't have happened to us, and then something that should have happened that didn't happen. And then we weren't offered some form of safety or reconnection after that. So we weren't able to find support from those that should have given us support or the resources to endure what was happening, just suffering versus trauma. So those traumas where a bad thing happened to the person, he's saying were actually easier to, to deal with. But the, the traumas where something was missing from someone's life, even when it was healed, it's almost like the trauma put their emotional growth into stasis because the person stops emotionally maturing and growing, closes up, and starts to react to the world on their own power, starts to look to themselves for strength, um, and in a, in a sense starts to be, you might call it a, a poser or an actor in the world instead of being authentic in the world. So I know one of the ways this happened in my life was when I stopped emotionally maturing, I doubled down on growing intellectually. So I just kept trying to be smarter and smarter and smarter so I could show up in the world and act like I was mature, be like an adult. But all of that growth and education was covering over, in a sense, a child that was inside of me that would come out when I was hungry, angry, lonely, tired, when I was overwhelmed, when I was in a space where I wasn't my best self. So once the trauma is healed, uh, and you can go back to earlier episodes in the season where we talk about sort of healing and approaching traumas through prayer and through other means, um, the maturity process needs to pick up where it left off. So if the trauma happened at four or five years old, like in the case of Therese, that maturity had to pick up. And, and that was both a natural process of her striving and growing over 10 years and then finally God coming in and we're doing a work of grace in her heart to finally uh, sort of bring her heart up to speed to match where her body was. Now, I, I read that story of Therese and I, I'm a little bit jealous, <laughs> to be honest. You know, th that healing, that full maturity came at the age of 14. Uh, how many of us in our 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s are still seeking after that full maturity that our heart could catch up with our body? So we need more than healing. We also need to mature. The question is, how do we mature? The wounding happens in relationship. The healing happens in relationship. Well, the maturing happens in relationship too. To understand uh, how this healing happens in relationship, we need to pull an idea out of neuroscience that some call mutual mind. It's really asking the question, how does the brain get in touch with another person's brain? How does our nervous system sync up with another person's nervous system? Well, this is Jim Wilder again. He says, when two minds tune their mind sight on each other, it creates a state of mutual mind. Dr. Alan Shore uses the, the classical term intersubjectivity when describing mutual mind and how it creates our identities. Mutual mind states synchronize human thought, motivation, energy, and activities by helping two brains to experience the same internal state of activation together and in real time. So the state of mutual mind is a state of emotional attunement. 
And this actually happens in a pre-conscious way, automatically, by the people we are around. So this next quote will, will, develop, will connect how this um, is related developmentally to us growing and maturing. He says, the brain system that creates mutual mind and mind sight and mutual mind is the same one that regulates our relational energy. This mechanism that creates mutual mind begins operation when we are five months old. As this relational engagement system grows, it learns to self-regulate. What Dallas Willard calls emotional maturity then is self-regulation. And for the brain, self-regulation, emotional maturity is deeply relational. What of spiritual maturity? Dallas just said that spiritual and normal human emotional maturity regulate our relational energy. Spiritual and emotional maturity must then use the same brain functions. So all this is saying is that the hardware in our body, the neurological wiring in our brains, the same system that regulates emotions is connected to our relational attunement to other people is also related to our uh, spiritual maturity too. All right, and one more quote for now. This is from Dan Siegel in his book, The Whole Brain Child, 12 Revolutionary Strategies to Nurture Your Child's Developing Mind. So he says in this book, as children develop their brains, or as children develop, their brains mirror their parents' brain. In other words, the parents' own growth and development or lack of those impact the child's brain. As parents become more aware and emotionally healthy, their children reap the reward and move toward health as well. All right, so this, this quote is saying that the, the, way we, uh, the way we emotionally mature is by being tuned to a greater mind than ours. The first greater minds that the Lord gives us is our parents, our mother and father. So as the system comes online, as our central nervous system develops, when we get to be about five months old, we start to tune to our parents' emotions. And the little baby isn't capable of regulating their own emotional states. They're reliant on their parents to regulate their emotional states. They do this by, by noticing the little subtle signs of their needs and wants, and then by reacting to them. And then the parents' emotions themselves offer regulation by this mutual mind state that they have with their children. Then it's in this environment then that the child's nervous system grows and is nurtured and nourished and grows into full maturity. But our mind can only develop as far as our parents' mind has developed. Another person's mind can only take us as far as it has gone. So here we encounter the second difficulty. We already talked about traumas. When we encounter a trauma, it puts this growth in stasis. It stops it from continuing. Well, the second issue is we can only go as far as the greater minds in our life can take us. And this presents us with a problem, right? Because nobody's perfect but Jesus and Mary. So we're also called to receive from others, to receive from the community. This is the idea of the kingdom of God, the idea of a Catholic parish of a community of faith, of a group of believers who live together, right? That, uh, that, that often quoted phrase, who knows who said it at first, but it takes a village to raise a child. 
Well, part of why it takes a village to raise a child is because it offers the child a variety of minds, a group of people who can uh, fill in the gaps for each other, who can offer a kind of regulation maybe that the parents can't offer, who can support the parents so they're even more regulated. But all this begs the question then, how do we ever become saints? How do we ever become more than we're capable of being just as humans? And I think the answer comes that we can actually enter into a state of mutual mind with God. We can be attuned with God. This is what the people from, um, from the life model, uh, Jim Wilder, call eyesight, the eye for Emmanuel. Emmanuel means God with us. So eyesight is having mutual mind with God. It's the recognition that God is present, truly good, and perseveres in doing good for us. It's not just an intellectual recognition, it's also an emotional recognition, which comes from the gift of faith and God's involvement in our life. How do we know we're in a mutual mind state with God? Well, we know because we're having an experience of God's kingdom, which can be identified with the experiences of joy and the experience of peace. The experience of joy and the experience of peace. Uh, Jim Wilder defines joy and peace kind of in relationship to each other. He says that peace is low energy joy and joy is high energy peace. So it's really the same experience, but just uh, differentiated by the level of of arousal that you're experiencing in your nervous system. A high energy being a joy experience, a low energy being a peace experience. But this, this subjective experience of peace or joy in a spiritual context is having mutual mind with God. Remember, the end game isn't healing. The end game is connection with the Lord. Healing is a means to that end. We're healed in relationship, and we're healed for relationship. Now, as I draw this episode to a close, I want to circle back and just talk a little bit about, uh, about the brain and the way that this connection actually works. There's what's sometimes been called, coined a relational circuit in the brain, and there's four levels to this circuit, starting with the most primitive pieces and, and lining up to the most advanced pieces. The first level is where attachment happens, this basic relationship to our parents and other deeply meaningful people in our lives. At this first level is the thalamus. The thalamus in the brain collects sensory data, so it kind of puts all of our sensory data together, and it also controls our our sleep versus wakefulness, our level of arousal, our level of awareness. Also on this level is our basal ganglia, which controls some of our automatic eye movements, our motivation, or our our valuation of things, basically how much we're automatically drawn or repulsed by things. The second level is our basic evaluation of what we're experiencing, whether it's safe or scary, whether it's familiar or foreign. At this level is the amygdala. The amygdala also then pulls in the the data from our, our sense of smell or pheromone processing. It's where emotional learning happens, reward anticipation, or memory modulation. So imagine a piece of information going from your senses, it passes through your thalamus, your basal ganglia, and now it's in your amygdala. And it's being both whether it's safe or whether it's scary, whether it's familiar or whether it's foreign. 
Well, if you encounter something that's scary, something that's threatening, and there isn't a greater mind there to help you self-regulate or you don't have the tools to regulate yourself, what happens then is this circuit breaks. It's almost like a surge protector, right? The energy going through the circuit's too great, so it breaks the connection in order to then protect you from the experience. And this is essentially what trauma does to this relational circuit. But if you are safe or if there's something familiar around to ground in, if you have the tools to, to encounter something that's difficult, the third level is where this mutual mind state takes place, where attunement takes place, where you feel understood. This is the cingulate cortex in the brain. This is a, the, a, great, a bunch of interconnection from your limbic system, the emotional part of your brain, where you perceive pain. It initiates movement and also where you recall um, autobiographical and emotional memories. And then the final layer, the fourth layer, is where you have executive control. This is the, the right orbital prefrontal cortex on the circuit. This is this uh, orbital prefrontal cortex is where personal identity is, um, where you're sort of captaining the ship of your life, uh, where you can quiet the reactions and the turmoil in your emotional life, where you experience flexibility to choose what you want to do versus what your instincts are driving you to do. So the circuit's important to learn because it's a recognition that it can shut off. And when it shuts off, it shuts off where you can become attuned, right? Where you can have that level of connection, where you can experience mutual mind. So if your relational circuit is shut off due to trauma, you're not capable of mutual mind. And if you're not capable of mutual mind, you can't grow in maturity. Your mind can't be tuned by a greater mind. So it's important to recognize we need to heal from the trauma, heal from the wound. We need to have connection with others. This relational circuit needs to be turned on neurologically in order to then connect with God and others and receive the, the attunement that we need to then mature. And this process for some is quick. Sometimes it can even be miraculous that the Lord would bring this about. And for others, it's gradual and slow. I want to close with a tool that the Life Model proposes that we use to go through this process. And they call it a manual journaling. And I'll have the steps in the show notes. Uh, so just go to the show notes and you can uh, get all these steps to go through this, this journaling procedure. So the manual journaling process just starts with a recognition of the body. You might breathe, you might move around a little bit, but just notice where your body is. Are you aroused? Meaning you're sort of agitated, you feel fidgety, you want to move around, you can't focus. Or on the other hand, are you sort of in, in, a, in a state of uh, being too shut down, right? Do you feel disconnected from your body? Do you feel distant? Uh, do you feel depressed? Do you feel low? So if you feel low, you might need to do something to sort of speed up, a little bit of movement, uh, maybe some stretching, uh, some breathing, but more of an even breathing or with a little bit more of an inhale to the breath. If you're a little hyper aroused, you might need to slow your system down, do some breathing with an extended out breath, maybe spend a little bit of time focusing on something in the room to calm yourself down. You start the journal by speaking in your own words. And the only thing you write in your own words are words of gratitude. Just simply talk to God about what you're grateful for. Say thanks for things that you're grateful for. 
these two, these two things that you're doing, the movement is addressing what's happening in, in, your, um, in your autonomic nervous system throughout your body. You're addressing your, um, your, your brainstem and the sort of data that's coming into your senses. And then the gratitude starts to open up the first layer of that relational circuit. After this, pray to hear God's voice. Now, you're not trying to just hear God's voice like, uh, like some kind of a locution or you're going to hear God's voice audibly, but you're trying to do what's called thought rhyming, mean, meaning you hear things in your heart that harmonize with God's heart, that sound like God sounds. So then you, after praying to hear God's voice, God's response to your heart, you do uh, a simple journal exercise where first you write down what God sees, external observations and internal observations. So if I did it for me right now, I'd say, I see you sitting in the chair in the Awakened Studios. And then you might write the internal. So right now, God might say to me, you know, I, I see you uh, both feeling anxious and hopeful that this episode comes off well and helps other people. So that's the first stage, what God sees, both externally and internally. The second stage, what God hears from you. So God says back to you what he hears from you, both what you've actually said to God and the unspoken words of your heart. So in this case, uh, God might say, I, I hear your desire uh, to build my kingdom with this podcast, and, I, and I'm pleased with that desire. This layer now addresses the third level. The movement, the breathing, the addressing what's going on in your body, and the how God sees you addresses that first layer, the attachment layer, and the second layer, that, that layer of basic evaluation of the situation. These, this first part sort of turns that relational circuit back on. Now this third step begins the attunement process what God hears from us. He's attuned to us. He's present to us. He's paying attention to us. Then finally, the next step, I understand how hard this is for you. I understand how big this is for you. God recognizing the immensity of what's going on in your life. I recognize, so in this sense, God might say to me, I recognize how passionate you are about this and, and how much energy you put into it. And, and I love that. Now, this starts to address that fourth layer of the relational circuit, that prefrontal cortex. So the, the final two steps are now God expressing that he's glad to be with you and that he treats your weakness tenderly. And then the fifth step, I can do something about what you're going through, how God's going to help you. So in, in my case, God might say, I'm so glad that this is happening. I'm here with you, uh, and I love that you're doing this. Um, I know that you're nervous about recording this episode and that you're worried that people won't really understand what you're saying. But I'm, I'm with you, and I'm going to use this to build my kingdom. I want to help others with this, and I want to help you with this. So this, this journaling process goes through that relational circuit, helps us to be phys physiologically capable of connecting to another mind, opens us to hearing God's voice, and then establishes a state of mutual mind with God. And the way I use this in my personal life is, is then I'll go on to some scripture meditation now that I, I'm in this state of connection. Um, and you can go back to season two where I talk about scripture meditation for that. 
So one of the common objections to this is that we're sort of putting ideas and thoughts in, in God's mouth, but I don't think this is actually the case. In, in every level, this is theologically true and also I think harmonizes with God's heart. God's omniscient and omnipresent. So God does see where you are and he does see what's in your heart. He does hear the words you say and he does hear what your heart is expressing. So that's all true. God's all-knowing. So he certainly does understand where your heart is, what you're saying, and what your heart's expressing. We know that God loves us, so he's glad to be with us. That's true. God treats our weakness tenderly. That's the story of every encounter that, that Jesus has with a sinner in the gospel that's coming to him with repentance. He treats them tenderly. Then finally, we know that God can do something about it. God's all-powerful. He's omnipotent. And God will help us. We have a good God. So, so every step of this, this journal corresponds to the divine attributes. It's, it's theologically sound. And I'll uh, quote the book Joyful Journey uh, in the show notes where you can get access to this. Well, I thank you for joining me um, through this journey of season three of Physically Spiritual. Uh, sorry for the delay between episodes. Um, I didn't have time to record this final episode. And then the Awakened Studios moved. You can see the new background and lighting and everything. Um, so we're excited for this new space. Um, if, if you would, uh, think about supporting the work of Physically Spiritual and Awaken Catholic. You can go to physicallyspiritual.com to become a patron of the show. There's different perks at different giving levels. Uh, the production of the show, all this work, uh, takes so much time and effort. Production work, the studio space. Uh, there's multiple employees that are involved in the process of, um, of making these videos happen. So, so if you have uh, the means and you want to help this work, continue to go to physicallyspiritual.com and become a patron of the show. And finally, as I approach now preparing for season four of Physically Spiritual, I'm going to have a few a bonus episodes that come out in the meantime. You all had to wait a month for this episode if you're following along week by week um, or over a month now. So every couple weeks between seasons, there's going to be some bonus content and, and exciting interviews that will be coming out. So stay tuned for that. Thank you so much for being a part of Physically Spiritual. Every moment of the show you've watched, know that I'm grateful that you've given your time to this. I'm so passionate about the message that I'm trying to share, and I'm excited about the future of the show. So thank you for every like, every view, every watch, every follow, every comment, every rating you give in the show. And a special thank you to all you that are already members of the Awakened Nation. So thanks again for supporting the show.